Before we begin the latest episode, it's that time of year again where I raise money for children's hospitals. Each year, my friends and I host a fundraising 24-hour live stream. This year, it'll be happening on Saturday, December 4th, starting at noon Eastern. That's 5 p.m. GMT. This is a stream where we chat, we play games, we generally have a lot of fun, all while raising money for these important charities. We hope you'll join us. And you can still find out more information or donate via this link, which is distractionsmedia.com forward slash charity stream. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And now on with the show. Welsh History Podcast, episode 155, The Turbulent Peace. After 1471, for all intents and purposes, the major players on both sides of the War of the Roses for the last 20 years were either dead, in prison, or in positions of power. King Edward IV ruled England and Wales for the rest of his life, basically unchallenged. For Jasper Tudor, the reality of this dire situation was setting in. While safe to a degree behind the refurbished walls of Pembroke Castle, he was now the only freed Lancastrian of any consequence left in Britain. He could try and once again fight a resistance campaign in Wales, but if he had any thoughts in that direction, it appears that they were fleeting at best. The king himself sent Morgan Ap Thomas to deal with Jasper. His father-in-law, Morgan's, was Roger Vaughan, who had been executed by Jasper earlier in the year. Needless to say, he had little love for the Tudors at this stage. Morgan surrounded the castle, barring escape and resupply. He dug in, creating trenches that would protect his troops and create little ways for anyone to escape. Jasper and Henry were now trapped in Pembroke Castle, and it looked like they would be starved into submission, by a long siege and a difficult process to lead to any sort of escape. Morgan might have no way to defeat the castle, but he could still defeat those inside by simply removing any ability for them to feed themselves or gain any sort of supply from any direction. In a strange twist to the story, a relief force finally arrived about eight days later, a ragged bunch of various farmers and soldiers of around 2,000 men, led by Morgan's brother, David Ap Thomas, who, instead of helping his brother, drove him off so that he could help Jasper and Henry escape. Upon being freed, Jasper and Henry were quickly transported to the well-defended coastal town of Tenby. The mayor of the town offered them shelter, this was an individual who had worked with Jasper in the past to help build massive fortifications around Tenby to keep it safe from invasion. And while the town offered them shelter, it also offered them this fortified location that would allow them likely to stay there for a long time. But they must have known that the longer they remained in Wales, the more likely things would turn out badly for them. They were little more than well-dressed outlaws at this point protected and defended, but outlaws nonetheless. 
Sooner or later, Edward would get serious and no amount of walls would stop him. It is actually a bit of a surprise that in all of this time, with a month to prepare, he wasn't able to create a big enough force to actually try and stop what Jasper was going to do. Whether he was either incapable because he didn't have the forces to put into play, or it was just simply a matter that he couldn't deal with these things while dealing with so many other issues that were going on at the same time. The concern over one Tudor heir to the throne may not have been strong enough to get that concerned and to push that hard. If he thought any of those things, he was very much mistaken. On June 2nd, 1471, just a month after the final defeat of Margaret, the Tudors left Tenby and Wales for over a decade. Heading into exile, Jasper had hoped to land in France to seek shelter from the king. Louis would have been sympathetic to the cause, but he also would have been a very dangerous warden. Louis XI may have feelings for Jasper as a man wronged, and also as he could use Henry as the presumptive king of England. He was also Jasper's cousin, having been related through Jasper's mother, the former Queen of England. So there were linkages there, but even with all that, Louis was ready and willing to sell you to the highest bidder if it suited his purposes. He was a Machiavellian prince, if there ever was one, and to be fair to him, it would suit his purposes a lot to gain Calais away from England, to gain a lot of the things that he desperately wanted in order to secure his kingdom and deal a death blow to his rivals. If Edward offered the right price, he was not going to turn him down. However, weather plays a role in this story, as it would blow the Tudors off course, and instead of landing in the Kingdom of France, the Tudors instead landed in the semi-independent Duchy of Brittany, and it was there in the spiritual Celtic home that the Tudors met the protection they needed. Duke Francis II, unlike Louis, was unlikely to make a deal to give them up. Make no mistake, he had his own political reasons for doing so, but he was also much less likely to sell them out when it was convenient. The arrival of the two exiles who owed no land and held no titles in England and Wales meant that they were valuable only in potential. They were then held in a gilded prison, for the most part, and even though this meant that they had free reign in a small area, it didn't mean they had free reign of the entire uh, area of Brittany, and certainly were not able to own land or to gain any sort of wealth while they were there. They were just kept as valuable pawns that they appeared to be. As the presumptive Lancastrian heir to the throne was now able to command a pretty penny, of course, Edward wants them back at any cost. He will do anything to gather Henry back into the fold, whether to execute or to at least keep him out of his way. It didn't change the fact that he wanted him back in England and he wanted him under his control. It's very likely, on the other hand, that Jasper would have found himself either at the end of a noose or the end of an axe, because likely... 
Edward didn't have the same need to keep him around that he would have had with Henry. He didn't cut deals with Jasper's relatives. It was Henry's mother who was the... that were part of the Lancastrian camp previously. Killing Henry or setting him up to fail in some way or other would have only angered Margaret Beaufort and her husband and certainly would have set a lot of trouble for the king later. So in all likelihood, Henry was always going to be protected in some way, was likely going to be reinstated as the Earl of Richmond and set aside as a trivia question at some point had Edward had his way. But that's not what happened. Instead, these expensive chess pieces were worth more than any price Edward could offer, and King Edward offered a lot to try and get them under his control, but threats, money, titles, and anything else he could offer, rather than making a deal, proved to Francis that as long as he held on to these men, the value would do nothing but go up, and so he could continue to hold it over the English as long as possible, and in the process, gain from that to his own benefit. The price for the Tudors would just keep escalating as long as they remained in Brittany. Meanwhile, back in Wales, the success of the Yorkists did not mean that peace was achieved, or that the nation was completely whole. Both the North and Wales continued to be areas of unruliness. General lawless bandits and criminal activity forced local and national governments to try and move in and to try and enforce peace and stability to a greater and lesser degree of success. These problems were combined with economic and population destabilization due to the various wars and plagues. As mentioned previously, the population in Wales, specifically in the marches, were changing. More English and Welsh nationals were intermixing, and some of their distinctive nature of the various parties started to merge. The focus in those lands became less on nationality and more on economics. The slow acquisition of wealth, combined with the deaths of so many in the hierarchy, allowed a number of people to climb the social ladder. Being married into richer or at least more historically advantaged family names gave more and more power to that group. This so-called squirearchy helped to fund the bards and poets to keep that famous Welsh tradition alive. They also were key to the late medieval building programs that saw many manor-style houses built in the eastern and southwestern farmlands. One aspect of peace meant that there was time and income to spend on homes that no longer needed walls or defenses. For the first time, possibly since the Roman occupation, there was building for the sake of showing off rather than practical defense. Even in the Principality, on the farm-rich island of Anglesey, the increasing wealth meant that there were great halls being built in places like Beaumaris. These were not the majority by any means, but it shows that changes were coming in Wales. Along with all this change came the end of the extended family farm, Instead of the general sense of cousins and other relations living in communal areas 
and creating small hamlets and villages where every person was related, we were starting to see more nuclear farms, more nuclear family farms being built, built around an individual family, a husband and wife with children. And these land holdings were modeling basically the ideas that had been in England for many years previously, were now becoming much more present in Wales. It was a process that had been happening ever since the beginning of the 15th century, but by now had increased dramatically. As mentioned in an earlier episode, for a long while, many trading partners were found for Welsh industry and agriculture in England. We mentioned before that this trade had created a method whereby goods and services, rather than being fielded out to the greater population in Europe, would have to go through England first. Now, this was an advantage for those towns and cities that could gain that trade. And because of this interlocking trade, places like Bristol became a major hub for all of this. The city grew as ships from Tenby, Chepstow, Haverford West, and Milford Haven traded goods back and forth through Bristol. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Goods came from Ireland, France, Portugal, and Spain and made their way into southern Wales via Bristol. 
This led to the famously named Key in Bristol being known as the Welshback. By 1532, 15% of Bristol's apprentices were from Wales, and almost all were from the marches in the south. The trade was not just goods, but also skilled workers looking for a new and better life in the big city. The peace of Edward may have created a level of stability, but it also brought more and more emigration. Welsh men and women sought to escape the poor agrarian life that they had generally been leading. For these people, it was not war, but money, which brought them to serve their former enemies. Of course, effective leadership was still important in Wales, and the king had placed his trust initially in the Duke of Gloucester to command the area. But, as various parts of the kingdom were troubled, it was often left to the king's brother Richard to deal with these various problems, and so he would spend very little time in Wales because he was chasing around various issues. This meant that the king had to find other options for how to deal with this large and unruly area. He first turned the reins over to a combination of leaders, including young William Herbert, the son of his former friend killed a few years back. Herbert was named the Earl of Pembroke, just like his father, and given command of the area around the southern marches. His responsibilities and abilities meant that he needed to be very skilled. His father, of course, had been very ruthless and very clever, and had always used that combination to gain more and more power and control in Wales. Unfortunately for Edward, the son was not the father. In the meantime, Edward's son was named Prince of Wales and was to be trained on how to deal with the principality for the king as he grew. Of course, he was just a small child at this point, only a couple of years old, so obviously would have no influence and no control in this circumstance. But nonetheless, part of the training of young men and women in the medieval period was to develop uh, an understanding and a knowledge and an ability through the instructions of older and more wise or experienced people. So, therefore, in 1473, the king set up a council to help the prince run Wales and, at this point, effectively administer the principality for the king and for his son. The three main figures in this council were Lord Rivers, Bishop Alcock, and Sir Thomas Vaughan. These men ruled Wales from the old Mortimer, in quotes, capital of Ludlow in Shropshire. The council had to deal with a lot, almost immediately. The marches had proven to be difficult to manage as border communities saw a lot of unlawful activity, and the need to enforce the law meant that a lot of time was taken up trying to get various parties to be held to account for the things they'd been doing. Obviously, this created a lot of conflict and problems for this council to deal with, and for just generally anybody dealing with Wales at this point. This was a consistent and continual problem, one that wouldn't really be sorted out for centuries. And these areas, of course, were constantly yielding up conflict and problems. There were murders, robberies, rapes, and then anywhere from that to even up to rebellions happening. And all of this had to be got under control. 
The Herbert family, for example, separate of their young heir, were considered to now be troublemakers, as they themselves would be causers of rebellions and stirring up animosity across the border, and whenever authorities were sent to track them down, would then flee back into Wales, hiding away in the mountains and valleys, trying to stay safe from trouble. This constant aggravation did not serve the Earl of Pembroke very well, who of course looked weak as his relatives created so much havoc, and because he had no control over these family members, or in some perspectives could be conceived of being in league with them, he was being held to account for a lot of the issues. In 1475, things were spinning out of control to the point where the Marquis of Dorset and Sir Richard Grey were commissioned to enforce the law and were sent about to try and bring justice to various people. Everything from minor misdemeanors to robbery to rebellion continued to plague Wales and the marches through this period. As mentioned, none of this looked good on the nobility. In growing frustration, the council called the marcher lords to Ludlow on March 24, 1476, to discuss the best means to restore order in Wales. Eventually, the inability of various lords to get a handle on the civic issue meant someone had to be held accountable. For the king, that fell to William Herbert, who was seen at best as ineffective. He found out the cost of this inability in 1479 as he lost possession to the title of Earl of Pembroke. He was instead made a lesser noble as Earl of Huntington, and his title would eventually make its way back to the family, but he himself would not receive that title again. And even though he would eventually find himself back in the good graces of a different king a few years later, with all of these problems and with all of this constant judicial issue, Wales continued to be a struggle. While it was no longer an open rebellion, it no longer had the obvious heir to the independent throne, it was by no means an easy area to take care of. We've talked in the past about how in the medieval period, once you got outside of the cities and towns, your life was taken in your hands because there were robbers, there was murderers, there was all sorts of misappropriation that could happen to you as you traveled. And while certainly it wasn't always bad, there was enough problems that you would find yourself in trouble if you went down the wrong alley, the wrong forest, into the wrong set of mountains, basically. And all of this continued to increase and not decrease as the Middle Ages continued. And you can understand why, due to the financial issues that were continuing to grow, Wales had been devastated by multiple wars and continued to struggle to rise back up from the economic problems that had been incurred through the Glyndor period, and even going back, I would argue, to the plague period of the previous century. Much of this along with a lot of the problems of the inability of some in the Welsh community to rise up the ladder due to them being Welsh people, uh, created more and more issues and more and more problems. And it's fascinating to note that with hindsight, we can see this, but so often it was not 
understood or seen by those in charge in England. And because of this, they just never got a handle on it. And things never really looked good in the area. And it would take the Industrial Revolution before Wales reached any sort of economic parity towards England. And uh, with that, I'd like to call an end to this episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, or you can contact me at Welsh History Pod on Twitter, or also you can talk to us or join our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Also, if you would like to make a uh, contribution to the funding of this podcast and the purchasing of the uh, books that I need in order to do research, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you later. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.